It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. And true currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. Right. Try it again. Wait, I've got. That's better. I have more. Wait, I've got. Wait, and there's one here. So. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Wait, uh, there's one more. Uh Is that enough? That sounded uh, like a chicken. It did kind of sound like a chicken. I don't know. Uh, that's all the time we have, folks. Good night, everybody. <laughs> uh, well, and... Happy New Year to Dan Costa, the first person that posted. Oh, really? Good. Happy New Year, Dan Costa. Um, and uh, what I've been telling people, and some people don't seem to appreciate, but I don't care, is happy not 2020 is what I have been telling people. Happy not 2020. <laughs> Oh, that one's sad. No, that sounded like a bugling moose. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and uh, welcome, welcome to the new year. Here we are. Oh, and and I need to pop something up here because uh, we had those of you who live in the Chicago area uh, awoke to that, and uh, it's you know, it's not impressive. It's a half an inch of snow or something, but that's my mm-hmm. backyard. And, uh, it's, uh, and those of you who are just on the podcast, sorry, you can't see the image, but you know, it's the backyard with a little bit of snow. And, and given that, um, uh, we've had almost no snow for this season so far, it's welcome. You know, where was this on Christmas Eve when we needed it? So, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's there now, uh, I guess. So good enough. Um, and here we are in 2021 and... Let's rock. Let's Welcome roll. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah. Um, we've got a great show for you today to start the year. We figure, you know, if you're going to uh, uh, be in the dead of winter, why not talk tomatoes? Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we're going to start with that. Uh, Dr. Harry Clee from the University of Florida, who's making a return to the program. Uh, he's been on a couple of times. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be with him in just a second. And then we go off uh, figuratively, not 
literally, to Medewin National Tallgrass Prairie uh, to talk about their 25th anniversary celebration, uh, which is happening all during 2021. And, you know, if you read up about Medewin, it's a pretty remarkable place. And if you haven't been down there, you got to go to Will County, uh, uh, what, 30 miles south of Chicago or something, and um, uh, around... Near Joliet, near Wilmington, uh, which is a mm-hmm. tiny town that is near there. Uh, it's the site of the old Joliet Arsenal. They used to call it the Joliet Arsenal, and they made bombs for decades. And there are bunkers are still there. And what they've done is they've uh, they the government turned over nineteen thousand acres of that to the U.S. Forest Service, and it is um, America's only national tall grass prairie and we're in the prairie state a prairie you know the prairie state which has less than one hundredth of one percent of natural prairie left um from the uh when we started um and the europeans Mm -hmm. came over and just plowed it all under well we're trying to under filled in the wetlands exactly we're trying to put some of it back, and that's what they're doing at uh, Medewin National Tallgrass Prairie. So we'll talk to uh, a couple of folks from there about the 25th anniversary celebration. That will be Bar- Mary Mitzos from the National Forest Foundation and Mike Redmer, who's been on the show before, uh, the restoration team leader and natural resources supervisor at Medewin. And then in the start of the second hour, Peggy and I are just going to hang around and Talk about some things that we've seen um, this year. A potpourri. The Pope, yes, potpourri. Um, and um, uh, just, a, you know, thousands of articles across our desk every day, it seems. Uh, and we, we're just going to discuss some of them, like uh, recycling your Christmas tree, recycling your Christmas lights, like um, how important it is. To, uh, to to talk about gas production in the United States and whether there's any future. I mean, people call it the transition fuel, um, and we might already be past that point where it's a transition mm-hmm. fuel. So, um, and a bunch of other topics that we're going to... And, of course, Rick DeMaio, our meteorologist, will be around at uh, 10.30. So, with all of that, let us go to our first guest and uh there he is it's uh, dr harry clee from the university of florida except you're not in florida are you dr clee no i'm not i'm in a little place called vashon washington which is an island in puget sound mm. i'll tell nice. you it's it's a beautiful place uh you you need to know uh harry that uh, my partner Kathleen and I had a house on the Olympic Peninsula for 17 years. Oh, um, did you? Yeah. So I am very familiar with that area, um, and it was on national forest land, and um, and it was on Lake Quinault. Um, and, oh my God, that's gorgeous! Yeah, I know it. So I know what old growth forest looks like. I know what uh, Zone Eight. A temperate zone eight is like you must. Okay, let's start there because you've been developing tomatoes at the University of Florida. You're not at, in Florida right now, and you're still with the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. What was the zone uh, where, when you were working in Florida? Oh, I don't officially know the zones, but I can tell you that uh, when I started in 1995. 
until this year, the average daily temperature has gone up by a couple of degrees. Really? Uh, in, in, down there? Oh, yeah. I think in the first 10 years I was in Florida, it broke 100 degrees once, and uh, now it does that routinely every single year. Uh, ah. The Florida Peninsula is remarkably stable because we have the Gulf Coast on one side and the Atlantic on the other, and so you get um, uh, that buffering of the water that keeps it pretty, um, pretty much the same all summer. Uh, you know, the temperature is going to be a high of nine. Well, it used to be a high of roughly 93 plus or minus one or two degrees. Uh, now it's uh, probably closer to 95. I have to ask our meteorologist Rick DeMaio about that because his parents live in Florida. So uh, I'm sure he does uh, a lot of research uh, about that. Um, mm -hmm. But the point I was going to make is there are some zones down there that are that have equivalents in Washington state. When we were out there, I learned that Washington state was a zone eight, but you wouldn't think of it as a zone eight, but because, but it's a zone eight because of the maritime influence, at least parts of it are zone eight. Obviously you go in the mountains, it's going to be much colder, uh, but uh, along the coast and you, and yet uh, the temperatures, at least historically rarely rose above 80, rarely got below 30. It was a very confined range. Um, and um, that has changed as it, as it has in Florida, as you just mentioned. Uh, things are a little yeah. more dynamic in uh, Washington State, too, aren't they? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, we've been – actually, this past summer was kind of uh, a milder summer, but we've had temperatures up in – again, up into the 90s, which is almost unheard of here. Uh, regularly the last several years. It's been a great place to grow tomatoes the last three or four years. And then this year, it was a little cooler. Um, we're supposed to be in an El Nino, which means cooler and wetter. Uh, I don't know how much... <laughs> it's hard to say wetter than, <laughs> than what we always do have. Uh, but uh, the, the summers have been much milder. It's been actually a very good place to grow tomatoes lately. That's interesting. So even Washington State is is changing enough to so you can yeah. grow tomatoes, and that's what you do. I first found out about you in 2015, and that's the first time we talked. Um, mm -hmm. I saw an article in Slate, um, and the headline was, "This is the perfect tomato, but supermarkets refuse to sell it." That that sort of was the jump start for for what you were doing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. That's what drove us in the first place was, uh, you know, the tomato industry in Florida is huge. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's very important. Uh, if you're buying a tomato in January on the East Coast, uh, it used to be that it came from Florida. That's actually not true anymore. But, uh, uh, yeah, the industry was, it was huge in Florida, and the product they produce just doesn't have any flavor. Yeah, and why is so, that? Why is it that the tomatoes traditionally that you, the ones you bought in a supermarket store bought tomatoes? Yeah, store bought did not have any flavor. Um, I think there's a lot of blame to go around. <laughs> uh, the uh, <clears throat> the breeders deserve a fair amount of it because um, it's it's a very difficult trait to to assess. Uh, I suspect what the two of you think is a good tomato is probably not exactly the same. 
uh, and and so you've got this this complexity of what is flavor. Uh, uh, lots of chemicals contribute to tomato flavor, and uh, it's just a, in terms of the genetics, it's it's just a, a big puzzle, and so it's 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 almost too well. It's not almost. It is too difficult for breeders to actually spend the time to work on flavor um, using the the traditional breeding methods. Uh, fortunately, we've got new methods now which make it more accessible, what we would call molecular breeding, <clears throat> um, which, which means we know what the, the entire genome of a tomato is and we can look at what genes are inherited very easily in the lab now. Um, so, but that wasn't available uh, up until just a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, so breeders basically said, it's too difficult for us. We're not going to bother with it. Uh, just forget it. And so they focused on the traits that the growers care about, which is primarily yield uh, and shippability in the case of Florida. Yeah. Um, so you've got a case where the breeders have basically said, we're not going to bother with flavor because it's too complicated for us. The growers aren't interested in flavor because they're not paid for it. Um, and, uh, I probably said this last time I was on, but, you know, the growers throw their hands up and say, well, you know, the, the wholesalers and retailers are only going to refrigerate our tomatoes anyway. So why should we even bother with flavor? Cause they're going to get the flavor. Any flavor they have is going to be ruined by the time they get to the consumer. Uh, so it's kind of a vicious circle. And then, and I always like to point out that you and the people who are listening to this show are not without blame here because, you know, people sold those tasteless mm -hmm. tomatoes since the 1970s. And, um, and we bought them. The yeah. And the reality is most people don't want to pay extra for a premium product. Mo either, well, they don't want to or they can't. Uh, and, and actually, the people I'm more concerned about are the ones who can't. Uh, we want to get people great tasting tomatoes, but we don't want them to have to pay a fortune to get them. Uh, you can buy a decent tomato in the store now, but you're going to pay $5 a pound for it. And most consumers either don't want to or can't afford to do that. But I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I think that good tasting tomatoes in stores are more available now than they ever were before mm -hmm. for some of the reasons you just said. And, and, and 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 here you are pointing fingers at us and me and you're right uh but i have changed you know my buying habits tomato because a i grow my own and so now i know yep. what a good tomato tastes like um kathleen and i will not buy a store a regular store bought you know the big bin with the the, the yep. hundreds of tomato yep. we pass that by we might buy uh, a cherry tomato uh, uh, or a little thing of cherry tomatoes because we know at least there will be a little flavor in them. Uh, or we sure. might buy somebody like a Mighty Vine tomato, which they mm -hmm. grow up here uh, outside of Chicago. Hydroponically. Yeah. Um, and some of the others that uh, are heirlooms that have been shipped in. And we will pay mm -hmm. a little extra and treat ourselves in the middle of the winter to a tomato. It's not going to be a regular yeah. habit. And that, yeah. and so our our buying habits have changed because of people like you, 
uh, who who have shown us, uh, and our friends who showed us the wisdom of of planting heirloom varieties as well. Yeah, and what we've uh, things have really what we've changed. gotten accustomed to from farmers markets too. Right, yeah, and yeah. farmers markets. Things have changed dramatically in the last few years. The the Florida tomato industry used to dominate the east half of the country in terms of the winter products. Now it's uh, it's dropped to much less than 50% of the product. Uh, and much of it now is coming from greenhouses. Uh, the, the industry that's really emerged in the last decade has been the greenhouse industry, particularly in Ontario. Uh, and my guess is that if you go into the store today in Chicago, you'll see probably the majority of your tomatoes are coming from Ontario right now. Hmm. Uh, yeah, a lot and, of them. and the Florida, in, yeah, the Florida industry has been basically cut out of the picture because people have, have as you just said, have turned around and said, we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a famous Who song that said that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they also we, said... We want flavor. The, uh, they also said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So there you go. Well, and that is absolutely true because those <laughs> greenhouse tomatoes are only somewhat better. They're still not very good. Yeah. Uh, they're a little better, uh, but they're still not great. So, and, and I think a lot of people also, especially a lot of our listeners, probably don't even buy tomatoes in the winter because they're trying to buy more local. Yeah. Right. And that's, yeah. that's what we did. We've sort of uh, eschewed eschew tomatoes in the winter. Yeah. And, and honestly, yes, I will use uh, if I have a recipe that calls for tomatoes, I'll use canned tomatoes in the wintertime. Uh, you know, I won't buy those tomatoes. I agree with you that the, the grape and the cherry tomatoes have much more flavor. Uh, they haven't been bred as intensively as the, the, the big beefsteak types of tomatoes. Um, and they're, they're closer to their, their historic parentage uh, than are the big tomatoes. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the tomatoes that you've bred. So what you did, and we need to uh, let people know about your citizen science project going on. But at at, uh, the uh, CLE labs at the University of Florida, uh, I found out in 2015, you were breeding something called the Garden Gem, which was sort of the prototype for what you're you're doing. And you still uh, sell seeds. You folks, if you're listening and watching, you can get seeds for the Garden Gem. If you go to my website, mikenovak.net, I've got the links. We'll, we'll um, get those posted too. Yeah, we'll and we'll get make sure we post on social media. Um, and uh, you started breeding that, and I got a hold of those seeds right away after the first time I talked to you. And you sent me something else called the uh, W Hybrid, um, mm-hmm. and uh, which has now been renamed, hasn't it? We call it Garden Ruby. I didn't like the name particularly, but it was the one that got the most votes. <laughs> really? I don't like it either. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I think there's, there's, there should be a better name for that. Garden. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that. I hope the people from my lab are listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it. Oh, come on. Not Garden Ruby. It's, it, it's not about the, uh, the, the color. It's about the flavor. But I found out something about it because I've been growing – Garden Ruby uh, or W Hybrid for the last several years, along with Garden Gem in my backyard. I've grown a little bit of the Garden Treasure. Peggy, you you've grown a lot of the Garden Treasure, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've grown all of them. Um, the Garden Treasures, I think, probably more so of any of them. 
But my best success has been with the W hybrid or the Garden Ruby. And I learned something by talking to you earlier this week, uh, Dr. Klee, which is the parentage of the Garden Mm -hmm. Ruby. Tell us a little bit about that and why it does so well in Chicago. Well, that's great because uh, the W in the original W hybrid stood for Wisconsin. Um, So what we actually did was, oh, now a decade ago, we started with an old variety called Wisconsin 55, which you can still buy. Um, And we did a little bit of selection on it. So it's not pure Wisconsin 55. What we did is we picked... uh, we did a little bit of breeding with it to develop one that had higher lycopene. So if you cut it open, you'll notice it's deep red inside uh, because it has much higher lycopene in it. Uh, but it's, it's, I would say, genetically, it's 90 plus percent identical to Wisconsin 55. Um, <laughs> and then we crossed it to one of our Florida parents uh, to make the hybrid. Uh, so it's done fabulously up there. Uh, the University of Wisconsin does a big organic trial every summer, and they consistently tell us it's, oh, I don't know, I, I, I'm not even sure they did it this past year, but in prior years, they would typically run 50 or more varieties, and it would be in the top two or three in terms of uh, performance. Uh, so it's not at all surprising. And here's the, here's the funny part, which is I grew Wisconsin 55. I've grown it for the last couple of years Yeah. next to the W hybrid. And Kathleen and I would say, we would pick tomatoes and we would go, okay, which one's which? I, I don't know. I can't tell. Well, I didn't realize that the W hybrid had Wisconsin 55 genes. Uh, and so no yep. wonder they look very similar and they're hard to tell apart if you just pick them. But as you pointed out the other day to me, the W hybrid is more prolific than the Wisconsin 55. Yes, it is. Uh, so the, the whole principle of the way we approached our program and back uh, well over a decade ago now is we screened as much heirloom material as we could get our hands on, and we're talking hundreds of them. Uh, and we picked the ones that we liked the best of those and then we started making hybrids to a modern uh, workhorse kind of tomato to see if we could get the best of both worlds. But we started with the, the varieties that we thought were good performer. Well, no, not good performers, good, good flavored varieties, uh, many of which didn't yield very much but tasted great. And we thought, well, can we capture the flavor of this variety and and improve its performance and so what you see there there was the wisconsin hybrid that we made was a, was a perfect example of that where it i think it has all of the flavor if not uh of the, the original wisconsin 55 but it performs better and that's that, that's sort of the poster child of what the whole program was about all right well let's just yeah. take a couple of minutes here uh to uh have that little argument about hybrids versus heirlooms um Mm -hmm. and you know because there are people out there who will be purists and say well no i want a a plant that can in the future perform from the seed it produces what what do you have to say about that well i mean we if you look at the cost per seed now different seed companies will gouge you more than others but uh uh 
you know, it costs a few cents per seed. Uh, and what you're paying for when you buy seeds is you're paying for someone to have produced them, cleaned them, make sure that they're disease free uh, and, and have a very high rate of germination. Um, that's, you know, that's what the seed companies do. And we're talking a few cents per plant. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, you can save seeds. I save seeds of a lot of stuff, uh, in my garden this summer, you know, I have a lot of things that aren't hybrids. I saved my own beans, my own peas, my own herbs. Uh, but in the case of the tomato in particular, um, a lot of the varieties are juggling a lot of different traits. Uh, people have brought in various disease resistances from different sources. Uh, and to make a, a variety that really has all of the traits that you want to combine, frankly, it's easier for the breeder to do it as a hybrid. Um, because a lot of, well, I don't want to get too jargony, but a lot of the disease resistances in particular are what we call dominant traits. That means as, as long as one of the parents has it, then the progeny will have it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really easy to combine, say, resistance to viruses and bacterial wilt and late blight uh, by putting this package together at the very end where it's a hybrid. Um, yeah, so, like, like you've done with with the uh, garden gems that you've now yeah, added the disease uh, resistance. And, and as you just said yourself with, when you, when you grew, that's great that you grew Wisconsin 55 side by side with my W hybrid. I hope that the W hybrid gave you better yield. It did. Uh, it absolutely did. Yeah. So that's what you're paying which, for. Um, yeah. Which know, transitions so us into this citizen science program too because i'm just looking at we only have a couple minutes here yeah so uh okay. we explain to folks what they how they can help you and they have two options when they go to your website explain what yeah. those two options are so this first option is the one we've had since uh 2015 which is you can get the three varieties the garden gem the garden treasure and now what we call garden ruby my chokes in my throat when i say that <laughs> uh, but um um and, but that, that's the one option. The second option is something that we tried. Uh, this is an outreach program. So uh, it was actually something that I developed uh, specifically with, with backing of National Science Foundation. And the goal is to educate people, uh, to teach them a little bit about science. And we decided, well, what better way to do that than to uh, leverage people's passion for tomatoes. Let's, let's show people what's really involved in developing a new variety of tomato. Um, so we have several varieties that we have not yet released uh, that we want people to try. Uh, and, and the advantage for us is people will try it in different parts of the country or even the world. Uh, and they'll, they can report back to us. They'll collect a little bit of data uh, and report back to us how it performed in Washington, Massachusetts, uh, Texas. And we'll be able to collect all that data. We'll be able, we're going to ask them questions. How was the yield? Uh, how was the flavor? Because the flavor... How did it... Were there any disease problems that they observed? Uh, and 
you know, because ideally we would do this in a very quantitative way, but we realize that a lot of people aren't going to do that. Um, so what we're also doing is including what we call a Czech variety, which is Better Boy. Uh, so you'll get seeds of Better Boy, and we're going to basically say, how did it perform relative to Better Boy? Mm. Was it better? Did it taste better? Did mm -hmm. you get more yield? Did the, was the plant more vigorous? Uh, and we'll collect the data and we'll help to decide what the next releases are. And uh, so that's, I, I, that's the basic strategy. Yeah. Are you look, so are those ones that uh, you're looking at the B hybrid and the R hybrid? Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. And the, so, the, the B hybrid, if you love garden treasure, you're going to love the B hybrid. Okay. Because, <laughs> because the B, the B stands for brandy wine. Uh, ah. And it's, now there are many, many different brandy wines out there, but the one that we chose is one that we really love the flavor of. And actually this is a great example of why the hybrid is so important. If you've ever grown brandy wine, uh, mm -hmm. you pick that tomato and it's like, it, it turns to mush in 24 hours. I mean, they, they taste great when you pick it right off the plant. Um, the hybrid is much firmer, uh, not, cool. not super firm. But, but significantly firmer. It has much longer shelf life. Uh, and we actually think it tastes better than the brandy wine. And what's the R stand for in the R hybrid? The R is a red currant. And red currant is a, I, I hesitate to say it, but it's pretty close, if not identical, to a wild tomato. What the wild species looks like if you went down to Mexico or Central America. And it's a hybrid. It gives you bigger fruit uh, than than the red currant itself. Red currant are only slightly larger than peas, mm -hmm. uh, but this one gives you a fruit that's maybe an inch across, uh, and so lots and lots of fruit uh, that have lots of flavor. Okay, uh, we need to wrap this up, but you also wanted to explain, and if you could just do it very briefly, if you sign on. For one of these, there is some there are some caveats, uh, and there are some you 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 were afraid that people were going to be off put by your request. Yes. And, and what is your request? Yeah, we have what's called a material transfer agreement. It's kind of like the software agreements that you have to agree to when you download mm -hmm. software. Uh, basically, what it says in legalese, uh, I, I took a five page document that our that our administrators gave it and reduced it to about 10 lines. Uh, but it basically says that you're not going to use these varieties for your own breeding program and you're not going to sell these varieties. So it's, it's basically to protect us from you taking this hard worked material and, and making a profit yourself. <laughs> that's, and so if you want to get involved uh, and that's, if you go to my website, the, that, uh, uh, option is the one where it says we are excited to announce our citizen science initiative is now live. You click on that. Uh, the other one says to help contribute to the development and distribution of new varieties through uh, we uh, citizen science, we suggest a $25 donation. So if you click on that one, that's the one that just gets you the garden jam and the W hybrid. Um, that's, yeah. that's $10. It's $10 and yeah. it's only because that's the the minimum that the university will process on a credit card. Okay, so uh, you can, yeah. every single but, but penny. But you can get to either option off the one site. Yeah. You yes, can, you can. You yeah. can. And yeah. so go to my website, mikenovak.net, and you'll find all this information. 
uh, and start growing these. You're going to really like the tomato. You don't have to grow them exclusively. You know, compare them to some of your heirlooms mm-hmm. and see what you get. Absolutely. That's what. That's the whole point of this. And we love feedback. I get I get lots of feedback from people around the world, uh, and it's wonderful. And I answer every single person who sends me something. Oh, oh that's fantastic, uh, Doctor Cleese. Thank you so much for being on the show thank again. We're, we'll have you back. I think we got to do it in the summer when we're growing this, and, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when there were actually. But we thought it would be a great way to start the year uh, to talk tomatoes and 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 think about the summer and and what we can produce then. Uh, so. And- um again you have a wonderful 2021 and i hope we talk again very very soon you too all right take Take care care. bye-bye uh it's the mike novak show with peggy malecki when we come back we're going out to medewin national tall grass prairie it's going to be a lot of fun hello from happy leaf this is bj miller the horticulturist here on staff Now that we've put away our gardens for the winter, it's time to start indoor gardening. The best way we can help you be successful with indoor gardening is to provide you with a really great grow light. There are a lot of choices on the market and it can be extremely confusing to decide what you need. Our goal here at Happy Leaf is to provide you with a light that lasts a very long time and makes your plants really happy. We have several satisfied customers, including our friends Mike Novak and Peggy Malecki, because we have specifically designed a light that is versatile, it's very effective, and it is extremely simple to use. Our lights are perfect for seed starting, but you can do so much more, especially these months of the winter. You can supply yourself with your own leafy greens and herbs, grow lots of different types of vegetables, keep your small fruit trees thriving, and your houseplants will think you've sent them for a day at the spa. You have the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collective Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen, they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. And I say, oh, yeah, I love clean air and fresh water on solid ground, right where I can stand. And I say, oh, yeah, give me the flora and the fauna that's a non-negotiable demand. You said it. Uh, welcome mm-hmm. back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Um, and uh, I, I love that song, and it, it, it takes us right up to our our next segment, uh, and uh, in the lower left of your screen, you can see Mary. And is it pronounced Mitsos or Mitsos, Mary? Oh, uh, it's an argument in my family, but I say Mitsos. 
Oh, Mitsos. Okay, so you don't say either. So, <laughs> Mary Mitsos um, is the president and CEO of the National Forest Foundation. Uh, Mike Redmer, uh, who's returning to the show. Good to see you again, Mike. Um, last time you were on, we were sitting outside a bunker at Medewa National Tallgrass Prairie and mm-hmm. trying to get a, a cell signal so that we could do the show. Um, I should have... Power cords running everywhere. Oh, oh my God. And Right, exactly. From <laughs> off a, your car battery. Off my car battery. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's so good to have you back. It's good to have uh, both of you here. And, and thank you because uh, this is the 25th anniversary of Medewin National Tallgrass Prairie, um, and uh, it's going to be happening all year, but there are events starting right away, and uh, we wanted to to get people uh, aware of of what's happening. Um, Mike, maybe you should give us a a, a little background. I, I At the beginning of the show, I, uh, I did talk a little bit about what Medewin is, but you've worked there for 30 years or around 30 years, um, both uh, as part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and now with Medewin. Um, tell us, what what is the concept of Medewin and why it's so important here in the Midwest? Yeah, so Medewin is, um, uh, Medewin was created on the former Joliet Arsenal, which was an army, uh, army base that basically manufactured and stored munitions. And it was decommissioned in the early 90s and Congress authorized the Forest Service to take it on as a unit within the National Forest Service. Um, but one of the primary uh, missions of Medewin is to restore habitat for uh, things like grassland birds or other wildlife and then just to restore grasslands and, and prairie. So um, mm-hmm. it's about currently about 18,000 acres, which makes it the largest single um, conservation site in the Chicago metropolitan area. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic place to go. Uh, if you haven't been down to uh, Medewin, uh, you should go now. In fact, you could. It's it's probably just as much fun to go down there in the winter as it is in the summer. I mean, this is what we call a four season opportunity, um, and p- one of the reasons is the introduction of bison into Medewin in 2015. Um, how big is that? Uh, do you know how big the herd is right now, Mike? Um, it's approximately 50 animals. Oh, I thought it was uh, as many as 80. I was uh, I was looking at one of some of the information, uh, and and uh, well, we'll have to get that number. We have to get the exact number of the bison. But the fact is, there's it's a small herd, and the idea is it, it's a, to be kept as a small herd, right? Correct. All right. Um, uh, and Mary, uh, Mary Mitos is, or Mitsos, sorry. Um, uh, it's great to have you uh, on the show. Tell me about uh, the uh, cooperation of the National Forest Foundation with um, the folks at Medewin, that would be the USDA Forest Service. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Um, so, uh, the National Forest Foundation is a congressionally authorized nonprofit, and we were established to partner with the Forest Service across the country. And um, 
You, uh, as the American public, are the proud owners of 193 million acres of national forests and grasslands that the Forest Service manages. And Medewin is unique in that system at uh, close to 20,000 acres and that it is the only national tall grass prairie. So we have been partnering with Medewin, oh, since about 2011, where we pulled together a bunch of Chicagoland stakeholders who uh, were in the conservation world to create a long-term vision for what Medewin can and should be in the future. And I'm really happy to say we are, we are on our way with those partners and the agency to making that vision a reality. Um, I think something you said is really important that folks might not be aware of. As you say, there are other grasslands in the country, but Medewin is unique in that it's a tall grass prairie. Can you explain the difference? Sure. So tall grass prairies, believe it or not, in this country used to be a major ecosystem type, and it is now more rare than rainforests. It's it's what a lot of people don't really understand because they haven't been able to see tall grass prairies. Um, so uh, Medewin is actually the largest uh, tall grass prairie ecosystem restoration project uh, east of the Mississippi. The other prairie is called a short grass prairie. And as you can imagine, it's quite a visual. In a tall grass prairie, the plants can grow, uh, you know, seven feet tall. So it can be above your heads. In short grass prairies, it's probably what most people think of as more traditional prairies. And then there's just flat out grasslands that are mostly grass. Yeah. Like, and uh, Nechusa. And... What was um, Sorry, Nechusa is a grassland, isn't it? I could be wrong. Sorry, uh, Nechusa, Mike, you'll have to help me here. I think they're actually tall grass prairie as well, or wanting to restore to tall grass prairie. Yeah, it, it is. It's a it's primarily a prairie, um, okay. located along about eighty or ninety miles northwest of Medewin. Right, uh, but doesn't have the same kind of. Uh, ambition in terms of what they're trying to accomplish Um, because here you are uh, taking what was a munitions area um, and turning it into uh, a grassland prairie Um, and it's it's amazing when you go there because uh, the bunkers are still there they're uh, in fact when the thing started uh, as you mentioned to me, Mike, you when you were working there in the early '90s, you you were uh, still a student, weren't you? What what work were you doing there in the early '90s? Yeah, so in um, uh, in 1992, uh, there was a study done on a number of bases, military bases throughout the country, and to determine what their future would be. And Medewin was well, the Joliet Arsenal was one of the ones that. Um, it was determined it would be closed down. So I was contacted by the Illinois DNR when I was a student um, to see if I'd be interested in coming out and surveying the base for amphibians and reptiles. Um, so that was that was the, the beginning of my relationship with, with Medewin 27 years ago. Yeah, I guess. And and what I would ask is, the, the reason I, I, I brought that up is, 
there were still a lot of the old buildings there at that time, weren't there? I mean, I, I imagine it has changed radically from when you were first there wandering around um, to what it is now where we invite the public in to, uh, to, to see the changes made. Yeah, it was, um, I guess the word dystopian comes to mind. Um, it was an yeah. interesting place because there were, there were, you know, large, vast areas of wetlands and some remnant prairie and grassland, but there was, there was this enormous infrastructure, um, mm-hmm. that was all built from the, you know, basically the war making machine, you know, World War II, the Korean War. Um, yeah. and, even into you know, uh, Vietnam. Those, yeah, Viet- even Vietnam in, in, into Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of those buildings, and, and it were, was, you know, it was, of, yeah, just the huge concrete bunkers and and other buildings yeah. as well. Correct. Yeah, it was. It was just a, there was a lot of infrastructure, and, and a lot of that is now being removed or has been removed. Uh, I I read something recently. Uh, and if you can go to my website, MikeNovak.net, and read up more about this, I've got some great links and a particular uh, uh, terrific story that came out uh, in 2020 about uh, Medewin, uh from Landscape Architecture magazine. Um, I guess it costs about fifty, more than $50,000 to remove any single one of those bunkers. Mary, you're you're nodding. So there, there's cash outlay to change the prairie, and and that the article is 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 very good in that it also explains how difficult it is to make that. You can't just throw seed down and then come back in ten years and you're going to have a prairie, right, Mary? That is uh, very correct. And um, just to focus on the bunkers a little bit longer, the. Really fascinating, one of the many fascinating stories about Medewin is, you know, it was tall grass prairie when uh, Europeans came to settle this country. They plowed it under for agriculture. Then it was turned over to the army with all of this infrastructure for war. And now Mm -hmm. we're taking it back to what it was, you know, hundreds of years ago. And it is, so you've got to remove the infrastructure, you've got to pull out the drain tiles that were put in for uh, farming to, to, you know, keep water off the land. Uh, then you have to take care of the invasive species, you've got to plant natives, and it's, it's just a cycle. Um, ecologists will say it won't be restored for, you know, another 20, 30 years, but for most of the public, you go out there and it's amazing to see this prairie come back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and all you, of the birds and the insects and the animals. Right. And and what I would mm-hmm. ask, uh, and I, don't let me forget about bringing up the partners that have, that have worked in there, but what I would ask, Mike, is have you seen those changes uh, as, uh, as a biologist uh, over the last 25, 27 years? What have you noticed that's different from the first time you went out there? Yeah, it's um. Th- there are some, there are still some remnants of that old army infrastructure, but it's it's incredible how much that's changed. You know, you you mentioned the last time I was on your show a few years ago, we sat in front of a bunker. Uh, you know, there there were there were several hundred of those, and and you know a lot of those are gone now. So you, you know, you can go out and where there used to be a long straight row of bunkers, now there aren't any. Um, you know, some of the other. Uh, factories and 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 other buildings that used to be there are now gone. So it's um, 
that's probably the most eye-catching thing, you know, when you go back over 27 years. You know, uh, sometimes I'm not out in some of these places for several years, and then I go back to help with a bird survey, and I don't recognize the place anymore. So it's uh, it's being changed for the better. Uh, it, it absolutely is. But uh, So the next step then, how has the biology changed over that time? Yeah, so, you know, that's that's an... That's a uh, that's an ongoing question, and that's something that um, we do a lot of monitoring, um, you know, and with some of the stakeholders that that we've already mentioned help out with that. Where there's an annual grassland bird survey um, that actually goes back to even before my involvement in the late '80s, the arm of these surveys to start. So, what that allows you to do is you had a, a um, you know, you had baseline data when that started, and then that can be tracked over time to see how the bird populations have responded. And, uh, you know, some things some and, some things have improved, and some things are you know not there anymore. What what they, species have you changing. noticed coming in now? Um, so the, uh, Henslow sparrows are one that you know that their populations have gotten a lot better over that period of time. Um, more recently, um, this is probably more of a winter phenomenon, but Medewin's been kind of in the spotlight because we've had a, a lot of um, a group of wintering short-eared owls hanging out, and you know, that's a that's a grassland-dependent species. That, and um, and and as long as you're mentioning that, there is a, a wonderful photo that uh, uh, was taken at Medewin on New Year's Day. So just a couple of days ago, it was by Mark Carosa, is the uh, photographer, and that's a one of the short-eared owls. Um, we have uh, another one. This is the one that uh, I think is is really fantastic. I, I'm sorry for you folks just listening on audio, but if uh, and if you're listening uh, away away from your computer, come back to the computer for a second and take a look at these photos. Yeah, uh, they're it's pretty amazing owl photos. Um, that one that I've got up there now. I love this, but uh, this is one that uh, you've got to do close up. Uh, that owl is staring right into the camera there. It's just uh, absolutely unbelievable. So um, with the snow this morning, uh, you and I talked earlier, uh, Mike, We those owls might go away for a little bit, right? Yeah, the snow cover could be a a problem for them. So short-eared owls, and they've also been there, I should mention, with a group of, of um, northern harriers, which is another grassland, um, it's a hawk, um, that yeah. that rely on voles. And they hunt voles, and it gets harder for them to find their food when there's some snow cover. So with the snows we've had over the past four or five days here, finally, um, this could make it a lot harder for them to get food, and they might have pushed south. We don't know yet, but... Yeah. Um, if it if it the snow cover keeps building, we probably will will have fewer opportunities to see them. Uh, are there any animals that benefit from the snow cover that uh, where the snow might provide better opportunities to see them? Um, you, you know, the winter is a time when a lot of things shut down. There are things you know, there are birds that will come in. Um, Probably a lot of these owls and harriers were here as a, again a winter phenomenon. So, it what it does is it causes animals to shift around um, yeah. in where they're at. Go ahead, Peg. Well, while we were talking birds, um, I'm kind of jumping ahead to the silver 
uh, 25th anniversary events, but January 6th is Bird Day. And um, Day when Scott kicking off the celebration with an event that day. Actually, um, I, I, now I have the fifth here. Fifth? It, I believe it's the fifth. Because uh, that's, I just, I, I copied. January 5th. At 6 p.m. Sorry. At 6 p.m. <laughs> January yeah. 5th at 6 p.m. National Bird Day. Um, so that's just. how a dream is being realized to increase sustainable habitat for grassland birds. So that's this coming week. So that's really the first uh, event of the 25th anniversary season is Bird Day in two days. Um, uh, and there will be more. Uh, what's going to happen uh, on, uh, in the Bird Day celebration? Uh, Mary, Mary, do you want to talk about that a little? or? No, th- I think you're better to talk about that, Mike. Okay, so. The, the, um, the panelists, yeah. Yeah, so the, the, the panel, um, there was a panel convened for, um, for, that, um, for that presentation on um, Tuesday night, and that's going to consist of um, a number of people who are instrumental in the, the whole process of Nadewin going from the Army over to the Forest Service, um, people who were, I guess, in the trenches. Um, so... Uh, Fran Hardy from the Nature Conservancy, uh, John Rogner, who's the current assistant director of the Illinois DNR, but was with the Fish and Wildlife Service at the time. Uh, John Turner, who was the, dir- the, uh, the director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at the time. Uh, Marianne Hahn, um, is a local, um, I guess like a super volunteer, super advocate for, for um conservation so um yeah they're going to convene a panel and just talk about you know where things were then and how we got here and um probably other questions related to how midaywin benefits wildlife and grassland birds and that's part of what's going to be talked about um all year uh, at various events then uh in february um you're going to have Bill Curtis, uh, he's going to do a keynote speech at uh, the Silver Anniversary Celebration sponsored uh, by the National Forest Foundation. Uh, do you want to talk about that one a little bit, Mary, since uh, you guys are involved in this? Sure, that would be great. So February 10th is the actual 25th anniversary of the establishment of Medewin. And um, for those of you who know Bill Curtis well, he is a lover of both prairie and bison. So he's going to do a a keynote speech and uh, really exciting. We have a chef from Prairie Grass Cafe. Her name is Sarah Stegner. Hopefully I said her last name correctly. She's going to do some some cooking shows as part of this virtual celebration as well. And I believe the public can uh, cook with her and it will be uh, things like wild rice cakes. And there'll be other people involved in that, uh, obviously, virtual celebration, just talking about the benefits and the wonder of Medellin. Yeah, we need to mention that. We it's, hope it's, you'll join us. Yeah, it's a virtual celebration. Uh, we're, folks, it's 2021, but guess what? The uh, pandemic is still here, uh, just just so you know, all right? this We're going to be doing virtual celebrations and events uh through the whole first half of this year maybe through the whole year we don't know we don't know uh, but you can take advantage of it i actually have the link to the registration for that but i have a i have a request uh mary uh and mike uh, for bill curtis um i want you <laughs> to ask him to say the word 
environment. Uh, that's uh, just uh, <laughs> that's just my request. I want to hear Bill, Bill Curtis say environment. Um, and you can say Mike Novak wanted uh, to hear this. Uh, and then oh, again, <laughs> but that sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun, especially I like the idea of people cooking along yeah. with the presentation. And, and- and prairie grass is local to the Chicago area up in Northbrook, so it's a great tie-in. Yeah. Uh, on March 3rd, there is uh, another event. Uh, and these are uh, pretty much all at 6 p.m. Uh, so uh, I'm glad you guys have them all at the same time and everybody can remember. Um, it's There will be a special focus on some of the USDA Forest Service uh, experts who have made a difference over the past 25 years. Um, on April 22nd, which is uh, the Earth Day celebration, uh, I'll look at the essential pieces in the restoration puzzle and that who are the volunteers and partners. Let's stop there. Let's talk about some of those partners because there's a lot of different organizations uh, who have been involved or that have been involved in the restoration of uh, prairie at Medewan. This is this is an operation that cannot happen by itself. You need those volunteers. Um, you need the partners. Um, I know that some you, we've mentioned some of them already. Of course, there's USDA and the Forest Service, and there's the National Forest Foundation, and there's the uh, um, Nature Conservancy and the Wetlands the, Initiative. The Wetlands Initiative. Any others that I'm missing here, Mary? Yeah, uh, Open Lands. Uh, oh, of Chicago course, Open based. Lands, yes. Yep, um, the Chicago Botanical Gardens, they they really help on the um, native seed program. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service, the Illinois Audubon, they do a lot, obviously, around the bird species and monitoring. Um, the Sierra Club. Uh, is also uh, heavily involved, and I've probably missed a few, um, and I'll apologize in advance for that. <laughs> well, There's okay. just a lot of people involved. And that's the point. It, you cannot do this alone, and all of the 19,000 acres is not going to be transformed overnight by itself. So uh, the other thing I will mention, and you can find this, again, if you go to my website, mikenovak.net, uh, and look uh, for uh, the blog on today's show, bison cam you guys have bison cam so you don't even have to go down there to see bison i was on the cam yesterday <laughs> do you <laughs> see any bison no i did not uh but i wasn't on for for very long but i but uh, i i will have to go back today but we have seen bison there so we know that we know that they are there oh yeah in in person and i'm hoping that yep. you know this is and this is one of the things uh i love the quote in one of the uh uh, articles that said, "Come for the bison, stay for the prairie," um, and and it's it's a way to get people in there, and uh, and I think it, it's a brilliant way to do that. Uh, as we wrap up here, anything else uh, that uh, uh, I've forgotten to mention myself, Mary or Mike? Well, I'd like to mention so the 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 biggest part of the restoration that is currently happening is on what we call the west side of Medewan, and yeah. there's a really large uh, joint project going on there now to restore about uh, three thousand acres that will connect most of the west side. 
and uh, it's the budget for that is about uh, 6.7 million in total, mm-hmm. and um, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation and the Grand Victoria Foundation have provided uh, some uh, matching grants, two million each, and the Forest Service is putting in 2.7 million, and then the National Forest F- Foundation is raising two million to bring the whole budget together. And I'm super excited to say that we are down to our last $100,000 to raise Woo-hoo. out of $2 million. That's pretty second. phenomenal. Uh, that's so, and, and how can folks uh, contribute if they want to? Uh, they can hop on the National Forest Foundation website. It's nationalforestsplural.org, and they can click on the donate button and designate their money towards Medellin. Uh, and I hope folks will do that, and you can find all those links uh, at my website as well. Uh, Mary Mitzos and Mike Redmer, thank you so much. I have a feeling we're going to be seeing you uh, during the course of this year to talk more about the events. And don't forget, Bill Curtis environment environment all right we we need to have i him. will make that request <laughs> okay great and i will be in such trouble great seeing you guys uh, we'll talk again soon uh, all happy right new year and happy right, new year happy new year to both of you it's the mike novak show with peggy malecki uh when we come back Peggy and I are going to talk about some of the stuff that's been going on crossing our desk and we hope that you out there uh, listening and uh, and watching will join us. Uh, go to uh, uh, whichever platform you're watching this on because we're looking at all the uh, the messages and emails coming in. We we, we want to hear from you as well, and we'll be right mm-hmm. back. A big hello from all of us here at Bartlett Tree Experts. Whether we're up in the trees, on the ground, in the office. Or in the lab. We really do love our work. We feel so lucky to share our passion for trees with you. And we want to say thank you for choosing us as your tree service. We look forward to working with you in 2021. Season's greetings. Feliz Navidad. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. And And Happy New Year. Since 2001, DiveHeart has been revolutionizing rehabilitation using zero gravity and scuba therapy to give confidence, independence, self-esteem, and yes, freedom to children, veterans, and others with disabilities. At DiveHeart, we believe in the power of partnership because together we can do great things. Let DiveHeart help you imagine the possibilities in your life. Go to DiveHeart.org to learn more. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a sip-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music porches. Whoops. Monsterate. All right. Give me all that I can there we go. There we go. That was supposed to work. Oh, well. Uh, welcome back. I've got a slightly different screen. 
set up. And I was looking at some of the um, messages coming in um, regarding bison cam. Uh, Veronica Hinky from uh, the USDA, who uh, who helps us set all these things up, um, says the public is notified through Facebook um, and Twitter, and uh, Facebook is uh, just at Medewin, and Twitter is at Medewin N A T T P. When the bison are visible on the bison webcam, so if then you know, and then you can go to uh, mm-hmm. the bison webcam. The CAM was introduced in 2016 through a partnership with the USDA Forest Service and the National Forest Foundation. Um, our friend Deborah Stout Moulton. Hi, Deb. Uh, she says hey, she's, Deb. she's planning a visit to Medewin with her grandson, which you should. It's a, uh, it's cool. Uh, getting back to uh, our other conversation <laughs> about tomatoes. I don't know if you saw Tracy DeMarco uh, had a comment. Yeah. She says, Cherokee purple forever. <laughs> okay, okay, Tracy. <laughs> Tracy being the contrarian, of course. Um, uh, and so, and hi to everybody else. I see Amos is with yep. us and Tina Lulu is is here with us. Uh, as we mentioned, Dan Costa. Yeah, people watching from Gray's Lake, Sycamore, Oak Park, Woodridge, Bolingbrook. Um, Mary says, I don't want to eat a tomato in January in the Midwest. Okay. That's probably, uh, well, it, yeah. You know, and that's, that's the whole point as we were talking about. If you, uh, if you want a good tasting tomato, you might have to wait. Um, again, however, they're if you're willing to pay for it. There are places yeah. like if I go to, uh, the dill pickle co-op, they'll have some good tomatoes occasionally. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're generally, uh, yeah, and, but it's, it's going to cost you uh, a little bit more. Or if you're growing under LEDs, if you're using the uh, happy leaf inside. Apparently, are, um, Polly at they, happy leaf is, uh, growing some are growing tiny Tim's. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wonder how, how those are doing. Um, I hope she's um, the watching. The note I had said they've been, uh, harvesting for about three weeks now. See? It can be done. I've got to set up my second uh, light here. Um, Kathleen has been begging me to do that. I think that's the project after the show today. Is set up the set. <laughs> I've we, got, but you I've cannot, got one light on over my uh, citrus trees right now. You cannot believe. Um, okay, I'm going to do something really dangerous. I'm going to I'm going to slide this and see if, so you can get a, a look at the farm. Look at the the happy. Ooh. Look at all that, all those vegetables there that Kathleen's been growing. That's our salad. Your salad. That's our salad for nice. the evening. So um, this is uh, what we. You know what? I'm going to take that light out too. I, I forgot to take that out. Hold on. Here, talk amongst yourselves while we're taking lights out. There we go. That's a little better. It's not so glary. All right. <laughs> uh, De- and Deb says, "Do you have to grow tiny Tims along with tulips?" But um bum. Oh, oh wait, wait. The the proper the proper response to that. Shut up, Wesley. Okay, there we go. Uh, we wanted to talk about a few things going on. Uh, and and Peggy, you were the one who brought this up first. I'm going to let you start with the Christmas tree recycling because if ever there were, I'm lo- seeing them at the curbs already. So I know if yeah. ever there were low hanging fruit. Um. 
It's Christmas tree recycling. It, it should be the easiest thing for you to do, and yet people mm-hmm. don't, and I don't do not understand yeah. why. Or put it in your yard for the birds for the winter, and then yeah, take care of it. In the spring. And then take care of it uh, later on. But uh, so where, um, you had some articles. Yeah. So there's a couple of articles. Block Club Chicago has had some articles. Chicago Tribune has had some articles. Um, the city has 25 spots where Chicagoans can. Uh, bring their trees to recycle them into mulch starting January 9th. Trees will be accepted until January 23rd. Only live or natural trees, no garlands, no wreaths. Ornaments and decorations must be removed. Um, Take the plastic bag off of the tree if you had put it in your car in a bag. Um, And then you can go and get free mulch at six of the recycling spots starting January 12th. And uh, there is a map, City of Chicago. Uh, if you go to Block Club, you can search for it. Um, but basically, it's all over the city. Yeah, it's that's that's the thing. They make it pretty easy for you. I kind of wish uh, they did uh, pick up, uh, but uh, you have to, you have to drop them off. And um, uh, yeah, su- suburban does some pickup. A lot of the suburbs, it's check each suburb to see if there's a location. Um, you can go to recyclebikes.com slash Chicago um, to get tree lists. But I think they also have some of the suburban locations there too. And that is recyclebycity.com slash Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a... Uh, and, uh, and, and I was going to say lights. Uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You go ahead with the lights and then I'll find what I'm looking for. Um, if you go to scarce.org... Um, our friends out at Scarce, they have an entire list of holiday light recycling locations um, on their website, and that is city and suburbs. They've got all the different uh, DuPage County is up there, Kane, Northern Cook, Lake, Will, um, many electronics recycling locations. So just go to scarce.org and look for the holiday light recycling locations. Yeah, it's easy to get rid of those. Um my friends uh, at, at do the right thing also we, they will pick up trees and i was looking for did we have a link to them uh um, I it's in i think the tribune article okay let's go to the tribune article here yeah cuz i i was um yeah cuz it was yeah. chicago in the uh, suburb do the right thing recycling here we go dtrt dash recycling.org and you can order a tree pickup there's a form online for that yeah um and some of the... some of the ones are a little pricey to pick up there uh among the l- least expensive um so um i i just did and if you can't afford to have your tree recycled as peggy said put it in your backyard just um yeah, or put it in your yard now for the birds and right, exactly. um, recycle they, it in the spring. They appreciate the shelter, and uh, um, they will thank you <laughs> for it <laughs> later. I'm, not, uh, with, I'm putting with, some of these links up right now. With gifts. Um, so that's, that is the first place we wanted to start, is, is to let you know that um, there are... Uh, Places that you can get the tree recycled, especially in the city of Chicago, it's 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 pretty easy to do. I also wanted to 
let folks know about a couple of events that I that came across the desk. And these are some of these are, are kind of random, but um, mm-hmm. uh, this one is a Kilbourne Parks Winter Gardening Zoom classes are coming up, and you can go to yeah. Chica- Chicago Those Park Dis- in... uh, uh, Chicago start in Park- February, I think. Uh, yeah, chicagoparkdistrict.com slash event, and you can start to uh, find... You, there's there's all kinds of events going on, and, and you can look them up there. So if, you, if you're interested in getting stuff growing uh, early in the year, uh, it's not just Kilbourne Park, uh, but there's, there's, there are many different events there. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to call to your attention, if you're in Will County Way, is uh, they've got an Eagle Watch set for January 9th at uh, it, at Four Rivers in Chanahan, and uh, and you just go to reconnectwithnature.org, uh, which takes you and to Will there's County. There's an events calendar up there, yeah, and you can click on that and get the details. Yeah. And, and that got, actually is an in-person event. Um, masks required, of course, and distancing. Right. If you, if you're going to take part in any of these events, please masks and, uh, and social distancing will be required. But, uh, I love the folk. I get stuff from, uh, the folks at Will County all the time and I don't mention them enough. They do cool stuff. In fact, they're, you know, they're jerk series. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Uh, I don't have that audio right here. I could I could go and try to find it right now, but uh, uh, I should have had that ready to play next week. Yeah. So, um, anything you want to go? Uh, anything else that you wanted to mention? No, I, actually, I see. Uh, so Bruce just posted. We kept our Christmas tree from last year. It only turned brown. It didn't lose the needles. We decorated it this year outside. Oh, that's so interesting. It didn't turn brown? What did you guys do? No, it turned brown. It oh, it, tur- it did turn brown. They moved okay. their tree outside. It turned brown, but it kept all the needles, and so they decorated it outside this year, says Bruce. That's very cool. So, uh, so oh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for my – my computer is, like, in slow mode right now. Um, okay. The, okay, something else we've talked about on the show, um, the horse carriage ban. Right. Went into effect January 1st. Um, uh, so as which of is Jan- no new licenses. Yeah, as of January 1st, there are no more horse-drawn carriages in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a victory for uh, the uh, Chicago Alliance Chicago for Alliance Animals. Chicago Alliance for Animals, yeah. right. uh, founded by Jody Whitaker, yeah. Um, so, Jody Whitaker, congratulations to you. And that kind of happened uh, as we she was on the show several months ago and it sort of happened during the pandemic. So it was hard for folks to notice what was going on there, but, um, but it it took effect as of January 1st. So there you go. Um, there was an interesting article that I found out about, uh, via friends of the parks. They sent out a newsletter and they attached to this, uh, WTTW story, uh, where they were looking back on 2020 and some of the environmental things that went on during 2020. One of them uh, was climate change, and we'll talk about this in regard to Mm -hmm. a few other things. Um, 
but they mentioned it in terms of what happened along the lakefront, which was a, a, you know a big year because the lake levels were so high and there were storms. Um, as they write, um, after Chicago's lakefront was pounded by a January storm, city council passed a resolution declaring a climate emergency, mm-hmm. a largely symbolic act. Uh, but Chicago, they also mentioned that Chicago had its wettest hist- wettest May in history. Um, summer lake temperatures 10 degrees higher than in 2019. Yeah. Of course, we had a tornado touchdown in Rogers Park. We have to mention With some of this. Derecho. Yeah, uh, during the derecho. Um, and uh, a, a record string of uncommonly warm days in November. I mean... It was pretty crazy weather year. Uh, we'll yeah. mention that to and, Rick DeMaio. And and I saw that the article did get in the fact that there is still no Department of the Environment. In As they write here, though, Mayor Lori Lightfoot appointed a chief sustainability officer in June. The city still lacks the Department of the Environment. Well, yeah. Environment. Environment. Um, and uh, this is, I was talking to somebody just yesterday about Lori Lightfoot and saying why I, I've i got issues with her. It's There's where you start, is environmental matters. I, I mean, I know there's been a lot on her plate, but there's a lot on every mayor's plate. Um, and, um, I, you know, I look at chief sustainability officer. Yeah, Rom had a chief sustainability officer, and they had a parade of chief sustainability officers come through, and what got done? Shrug. I don't know. Uh, the same person I was talking to yesterday, uh, and I started talking about, she said, um, um, I, she asked about, did you get the new lights in your neighborhood? I said, don't get me started on that. Uh, we need to have um, Audrey Fisher back on the show yeah. to talk about the, you know, the, the city one. Okay, the the city infrastructure department, whatever department is handling that, they got to put in the lights they want. They're too blue in spectrum they're too they, too much glare wrong temperature wrong temperature too bright um two hundred and seventy thousand of them and what they're going to do is when they're done with that they're going to go see look at how great this is um and yeah they're going to save money that's that's part of their deal is that to save money because they're leds yes but saving money is not the whole issue here um it could have been done better it could have been done smarter um and in terms of uh, you want to talk deep state Let's talk city bureaucracies. That's your real deep state. Forget Washington. Washington, you know what deep state is until you come work in Chicago and live in Chicago. That's deep state. Uh, But I digress. Um, (laughs) But we do need to talk lights again sometime very soon. We do. Uh, One of the other, I was talking about the WTTW story. Uh, One of their uh, number seven on their list of 10 was environmental justice. You know, and that's talking something we've talked about on this show many times. The the botch coal plant demolition uh, in Little Village. Uh, General Iron. General Iron, where they had an explosion, and now they're going to move General Iron to the southeast side because the southeast side is the is where. Uh, oh, what's the phrase? I can't. I'm not even be able to remember. The phrase, it's just uh, we sacrifice people down there to industry is what we do on the southeast side of Chicago. Um, and their message, the, it said, um, 
The fact that these events occurred during a respiratory pandemic added urgency to activists' calls for environmental justice. Their message to officials, stop treating our neighborhoods like the city's dumping ground. Uh, If you can fight against General Iron going to the southeast side, you should do that. Um, I'm, I'm asking folks watching this and listening to this, do whatever you can to help. Finally, the, um, the last one in the WTTW story was uh, Nature to the Rescue, which was very interesting. Yeah. Um, and they write... Yeah, and it, go ahead. Oh, I was... Go, go ahead, because I was surprised something that wasn't included in there. Okay. Well, they wrote, if there was a winner in 2020, it was nature, as people rediscovered the beauty and simple pleasures to be found outdoors. A record number of visitors flocked to Chicago area forest preserves. Bird watching earned legions of new fans, and there was for once plenty of time to stop and smell the flowers. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Folks were intrigued by the notion of converting lawn to prairie, awed by a new comet, neowise, which I did not see because you don't see much star activity where I live here in the city. And rooted for the lonely black bear roaming Illinois. I missed that story. I don't know how I missed yeah, that. Yeah, I don't recall that one either. That was like in May, I guess. Uh, we even tried to set the record straight on the so-called Christmas star, which, of course, is Jupiter and Saturn in conjunction. Uh, and there's a photo here of a red-tailed hawk outside the Jewel Osco on, at 3400 Northwestern Avenue. Uh, November 21st. I missed that one, too. How did I miss that? <laughs> what is it that well, you had? I'm surprised the Great Lakes piping plovers aren't in there, that they didn't mention them. That's true. See? It's a good thing we've been covering it on our on our show. Yeah, Bob, Bob Dolgan and This Week in Birding has um, continued covering the, the plovers. He's actually working on another documentary right now. Um, um, but the, the plovers coming back for two years, they've actually spotted at least one of the chicks yeah, down in, south. Like in North, uh, South Carolina or something? The Carolinas, yeah. 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 Um, and then there was a story um, in the Washington Post, a 2021 preview that had some interesting stuff. Here's the thing that I thought was very, uh, very interesting, uh, and it was about climate um and their headline for it is a 2020 repeat but this time on purpose mm-hmm. um listen to this yeah in- i read that i'm like what yeah. oh yeah and it made sense when you read it yeah a year ago united nations scientists issued a dire warning to humanity to keep global warming within tolerable limits we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions by an unheard of 7.6% annually. 12 months later, though, the world just about hit that target unintentionally and at the terrible cost of more than 1.5 million lives. Of course, it was the coronavirus shutdowns and resulting economic devastation led to the biggest decline in planet warming emissions in human history, about 7%. So that the scientists had said we need to go down 7.6. We went down 7. But do you think it's going to happen again this year? I don't think so. Um, but it's a, it's kind of a warning. Yeah. So people are now paying attention. And with administration change and a lot of other things coming up, people are paying attention now. Yeah. Um, what they say in this story 
which uh, I'm not opening because my computer's like crawling. Is it frozen right now, on you? So. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not frozen, but it's crawling, and I'm afraid to open up the okay. story. So and take it away. Should have <laughs> rebooted before the show. Um, if humanity uh, does not reverse course on climate change in the coming year, we will find ourselves locked into escalating warming for decades to come. This is the one chance we have, German climatologist mm-hmm. Nicholas Hune told the Post. Uh, governments will not spend this much money again in 10 years. Um, it's They're talking about the governments spending money to $13 trillion, trillion dollars to help their country recover, recover from the pandemic. Well, that's the opportunity. Put that money yes. into clean energy because they won't be – this money is not going to come around again like this in this opportunity. It's not going to be here. Um, yeah. Which know, takes that, me – That kind of – yeah, I was going to say takes you to the people's gas. Takes to the people's gas story, which just came out the other day. Uh, this is really interesting. Let's see if uh, my computer will open. Here it is. It was in the Trib. Uh, here's a headline. People's Gas is spending billions to replace miles of aging pipe below Chicago by 2040. But will natural gas be obsolete before it's complete? And that's the story. It's taking a lot of time. It said uh, when, when People's Gas launched its massive customer-funded, hey, folks, you're paying for it, System modernization program to replace 2,000 miles of aging iron pipes below Chicago streets. In 2011, they started this. The utility said it would take 20 years and cost $2.6 billion to finish. Nearly 10 years later, it's less than a third complete, and People's Gas now says it will take until 2040 and cost $7.7 billion. Yeah. Um, so and there, probably more. Yeah. And by 2040, when they say that this program will finally be completed, the entire structure of the energy system, both gas and electric, will have been completely transformed, said Christy Hicks, a senior attorney for the Environmental Defense Fund focused on clean energy initiatives in Illinois. We really need to be taking a hard look at whether it is in the public interest to continue this program as it was designed almost a decade ago. And part of the problem, obviously, is that pipes are leaking. Um, there have been explosions in other cities, and they're trying to avoid that, replace the, the, uh, the metal pipes with plastic. But if they're not going to be finished by 2040, as she says... So many things will have changed by then. Yeah, what's the point at that point? Although the article also talked about, I think the oldest pipe they've pulled so far was almost 160 years old. <laughs> I know, it's 1859. <laughs> that was scary. So, so this took me, takes me, and this I guess will be the last thing we mentioned, uh, an article that Kathleen uh, sent to me, which was just amazing. It's called the Pro- the false promise of natural gas, and and mm-hmm. and you know how for years people have been talking about natural gas as a bridge uh, to clean energy between coal and oil, uh, and gas will 
be the bridge. The problem is, what is Gath? It's 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 composed principally of methane, um, and we know how damaging methane is to our atmosphere. And these uh, and, three and uh, it has to be extracted. Three doctors wrote this. Three MDs uh, wrote this, and they were taking from the health standpoint. Um, their conclusions are, are are pretty interesting. They say. And 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 uh, I need to post this link. Uh, you know, can you get this link up there? I think, uh, yeah, Peggy, that would be great. So people can read this article for themselves. But they recommend that state and federal subsidies for natural gas be reduced over the next two years and then eliminated after two years. The International Monetary Fund has made similar recommendations. We also recommend that new residential. This is the stunning part to me. We also recommend that new residential or commercial gas hookups not be permitted new gas appliances be removed from the market Mm -hmm. further gas exploration on federal lands be banned and all new or planned construction of gas infrastructure be halted we believe an ill-conceived proposal announced recently by the environmental protection agency whoa um by the Environmental Protection Agency to roll back limits on methane pollution needs to be blocked. At the same time, we call for the creation of new tax structures, subsidies, and incentives such as carbon pricing that favor wind, solar power, and other non-polluting renewable energy sources and policies that that support energy conservation, clean vehicles, and expansion of public transit. And, 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 And the idea is that if we continue subsidizing gas now, we're going to get locked into it. And then what will happen is the folks will say, well, we've put all this money into it. Why, why, uh, why are we going away from it? Well, and these doctors are saying, well, don't put the money into it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Forget that idea. We're, we're past Move that right point. Right to the clean. Yeah. Right, right. And it's, and it's really stunning. So Kathleen's already said, um, can we get one of those fancy electric yeah. hot plates? For our, for our, instead of the gas oven we have here, or gas stove, uh, and we're we're yeah. actually looking into that. I'm well, sorry, I have had, a gas um, stove. I, I, there's a, that's what I've got right. I now. do have an electric oven, but yeah. Um, when we've had architect Nate Kipnis on the show, or we've talked to other people talking about a cleaner home environment and cleaner air and everything else, is putting in the electric appliances. Yeah. Instead of the gas. So but I'm just looking at comments here of, of uh, people asking about disposal of pipes. Wow, etc. We should. Uh, this sounds like a segment that that we should cover. Yeah, I think I think we need to do that. In, you know, we had um, uh, uh, Lisa Albrecht on recently talk about solar and how Illinois needs to start putting some money back into that so we can keep that ramped up and going strong. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. uh, it's it's all connected. So there you go, folks. That's that's kind of okay. what. Okay. Well, we, we we missed the one story quickly. Oh, Scotty yes. got beamed up. Scotty got beamed up. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is <laughs> that, that is so cool. Uh, we can those... end on that note before yeah. we get to Rick. All right. Uh, if you missed this story, um, a private astronaut secretly stashed the ashes of the late James Doohan, who played the character Scotty on the original Star Trek television series aboard the International Space Station about 12 years ago, the Times of London reported. 
the details of how Richard Garriott, who's one of the first private astronauts to travel on the space station, smuggled Dewan's ashes in 2008 during a 12-day mission has been made public only <laughs> now. Uh, until now, only Garriott... And he put him under the floor. Yeah. Uh, he put a laminated picture of the late actor and some of his ashes under the floor of the uh, space station's Columbus module. It was completely clandestine, he's quoted as saying. Uh, his family were very pleased that the ashes made it up there, but we were all disappointed we didn't get to talk about it publicly for so long. Now enough time has passed that we can. So, Scotty, uh, and by the way, Dewan died uh, in 2005 at the age of 85. Um, and his his family found it hard to fulfill his wish of making it to the International Space Station after official requests to transport Dewan's ashes were rejected. So the ashes got, got up to the International Space Station. Beat me up, Scotty. After all. All right, I see that Mr. DeMaio is joining us uh, right now. Let's take, uh, there he is, he's waving, uh, and uh, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back with uh, weather and climate. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time indoors with our plants, so help them thrive. The plants you're viewing were treated with Leafzyme, a foliage spray designed to activate beneficial microbes already present on the leaves. A spritz every few weeks promotes growth-enhancing microorganisms that process dust and other particles into nutrition that indoor plants can absorb through their leaves for beautiful and vigorous growth. Go to blazing-star.com and check out their BioGarden line for home gardeners. You can help slow climate change in 2021 by composting. And you don't even need a backyard. By composting communally in multi-unit buildings across Chicagoland, Collective Resource Compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. CRC brings you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter, they swap it out, and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us. Hello from Happy Leaf. This is B.J. Miller, the horticulturist here on staff. Now that we've put away our gardens for the winter, it's time to start indoor gardening. The best way we can help you be successful with indoor gardening is to provide you with a really great grow light. There are a lot of choices on the market and it can be extremely confusing to decide what you need. Our goal here at Happy Leaf is to provide you with a light that lasts a very long time and makes your plants really happy. We have several satisfied customers, including our friends Mike Novak and Peggy Malecki, because we have specifically designed a light that is versatile, it's very effective, and it is extremely simple to use. Our lights are perfect for seed starting, but you can do so much more, especially these months of the winter. You can supply yourself with your own leafy greens and herbs, grow lots of different types of vegetables, keep your small fruit trees thriving, and your houseplants will think you've sent them for a day at the spa. I might play this again. (laughs) 
You know what happens? Are we done you, with that till next year? We're done with that until next year. Those aren't even real cats. That's just a lot of electronic noises. Uh, yeah. Hey, we need to uh, to talk about this, Peggy. I'm going to let you uh, handle it. Yeah, because it's a new year with a new chance to learn new things about growing your own food from McHenry County College's Center for Agrarian Learning. Atina Diffley, the organic vegetable farmer and author of the award-winning memoir, Turn Here Sweet Corn, Organic Farming Works, is presenting two workshops of two sessions each. Now, both of these workshops feature valuable skills for new and established farmers. The first is called Record Keeping Made Easier, Strategies and Systems, and that takes place on January 13th and 20th, virtually, of course. The second is Crop Planning for Market Needs and Profitability, and that's on January 27th and February 3rd. Now, as part of your registration, you'll receive either the Wholesale Success Manual or the Direct Market Success Manual, an $80 value, and both are published by Family Farmed, which is supporting these workshops. Um, you know, as we've mentioned before, Tina Diffley, she's been a guest on the show. She knows her stuff, and you will be glad you signed up, especially when you realize that the workshops are available for only $5 each. So go to mchenry.edu slash cal to find more information. That's mchenry.edu slash cal. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and of course it's... Wait, that's not a good one. Where's get this one? There we go. Um, it's a new new year, and <laughs> and we have chicken. Very good, thank you. I see. I got to record that, and I just play it back whenever whenever I need it. Let's uh, go to meteorologist Rick Demile. Rick, how you doing this morning? I'm I'm doing good. Now you can see the <clears throat> phone is kind of pointing upwards towards the ceiling. That's because I didn't. That's because I didn't shave, so I want to make sure that right now the ceiling looks better than my face. Uh, okay. Well, I'm I I I'm not using that. We're using the photo of you, so you don't even have to worry about that. Okay. All right. That's even better. That that's when I was uh, five years five years and probably felt ten years younger as well, right? Uh, it's about that, actually. It's it's pretty close to that. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you'll you'll appreciate that. We, we were we photoshopped you. Um, there you and, go. Thanks, Pat. Uh, Kathleen works very hard on these uh, photos, making people look really, really good in them. Um, <laughs> I'm glad. We were looking at, uh, we were just talking about some of the stuff for uh, 2020. Um, and I have to admit that I was uh, taken aback by what an interesting weather year it was. Uh, WTTW uh, talked about the, some of the things that happened. Of course, the, the, the lakefront, Lake Michigan and the, the wettest May in history, uh, the derecho and the uh, tornado coming through Rogers Park. Um, I mean, just all of this stuff. And, I, and, and then, of course, the, the, the um, 10 degrees. Where's the, um, oh, the uh, we're, we're, we're record string. We're getting a big echo, Mike. I don't we're, know if there's anything you can do about that echo. Um, can you turn down your, uh, your uh, audio just a little bit there, Rick? Yeah, I'm not talking. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> I know just uh, to hear us, just enough so you can hear us there. Yeah, that's fine. How about that? Better? That's probably a little. Yep. Yeah, that's better. There we go. Okay. And uh, then there was the uh, record string of uncommonly warm days in November. I mean, it was a pretty interesting weather year, wasn't it, Rick? Yeah, it, it was interesting. interesting. Um, I, think, I think from a standpoint of just events that, didn't normally happen, um, happened. Um, I mean, we didn't like have like any like 
like record cold or record snow or record heat um, or record or drought. Um, and, and even though we did have some, you know, some significant weather events, I, I think they were noteworthy um, because either we haven't seen those in a while, um, not to say that they have not happened in the past and went unnoticed, uh, but I, I think people, people, in general, my, my estimate is that more my observation is that people, I think, are just more aware of weather now than they've ever been before. And, and I say that because I'll hear people say, um, my phone says it's going to rain in three hours. And I've never seen that before where people now are actually carrying around, you know, a personal weather forecast. And what then happens is if people are aware thing is going to happen and it doesn't happen, um, they'll either A, ask themselves why it didn't happen, find out where it did happen, or if they are aware that it's going to then they, are in, they anticipate it happening, and then they go, what they go, what happened? That was pretty cool. And then they just become more and more aware of, of other weather things as well. So the duration the dur- clearly was something that we have we have seen before of that magnitude. Mag- it also happened during the height of the not so much the growing season, but the near harvest season. Um, it also happened during a t- time time of you know economic uncertainty with you know some of the uh, trade policies that became very inconsistent for for farmers. Um, I think that went down. In the books is like a nine point eight billion dollar event, uh, but that was because it happened during a time when the corn was at its most healthy. It would have happened late in the year or early in the year. It probably wouldn't have been um, as costly. Uh, the lakefront clearly is becoming more and more, I think, of a concern. Something that we've been talking about about um, on your show, Mike, for probably ten years now, um, and has now finally got noticed. If you take a walk up along the um, either the Evanston uh, Beach area or Wilmette. Uh, the, the Evanston Beach um, has all of these large, um, I don't know what they actually have in there. I think it's like some like like a crushed stone or sand. Uh, these are barricades that are meant to keep the water from overflowing and flooding the park. And if you go to Gilson Beach, they took away about 20 to 30 feet of what used to be um, you know, some, some sort of combination of grass and trees and, and so uh, dune grass to make way for more beach. Now, they did that because Michigan is obviously higher and, have, and has eroded a which. So instead of them protecting the beach, they just added more beach by taking away, you know, a, you know or the landmass that was behind them. Um, they clearly looked at that as to them your and more affordable way of controlling the beach. I don't know if I agree with that, uh, but I know in many parts of the North Shore area, uh, they've had to do that. In Chicago, not as much. I mean, a, a big city, big beach is not going to get that much, um, I think, notoriety from a standpoint of what they're trying to do to control the lake. Uh, but they have put up barricades along the lakefront when the water does get fairly high, when there's an onshore flow, and that keeps people yeah. who are riding their bikes uh, to and from downtown Chicago from getting swept out into the lake. So obviously that's a good plan. Uh, and they are now obviously a little bit more aware of what could happen when there's flooding on Lakeshore Drive. Um, 
other than that, I, I think the year went down as kind of like kind of benign from a standpoint of major weather events. We did end up the year, and I got the numbers right here, um, 53.3 degrees. Uh, it turned out to be the fifth, fifth warmest year on record. That goes back to 1871. Uh, the warmest was 2012, 54.5 degrees. Are you talking and about – we are looking at – you talking that? about talking about Chicago or or worldwide or national or what? No, 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 Chicago, Chicago. Okay, okay, yeah, um, yeah. So this is interesting. Twenty twelve, we were fifty four point five degrees, and here we're twenty twenty fifty three point three degrees. And I just finished, you know, watching um, a special on Channel Seven about climate change in the Great Lakes, and everything was talked about how about our warmer years and warmer winters are making the lake levels higher, but yet in 2012, we had incredibly low lake levels. So shame on Channel 7 for not giving two parts of the science story there. I mean, if all you're going to do is just talk about talk about the fact that the lake levels are high because it's warm, you're not really telling the whole story. And what, what makes what really difficult for some of these um, municipalities to make long-term decisions is is they know that if they overspend on protecting the lake, what happens when all of a sudden the lake level is really low? Have a lot of people who are now doubting you on what you did when the lake level is high. So I urge anybody who is a fan of some of these, you know, short-term, you know, quote documentaries on climate change in the Great Lakes to to challenge sometimes what you think is going on in your mind if you're a lifelong Chicagoan and go, but wait a minute. In 2012, we were a degree warmer, but yet the lake was two and a half feet lower. Why? Okay, you got to be able to look at both sides of the story there. And even though we were 53.3 degrees, you know, just as warm or almost as warm as that were in 2012, we had 39.2 inches of rain, which was two and a half inches above normal back in 2012. Um, even though we were warm, we were quite dry as well. So what I think we're seeing, Mike and Peg, is this increased uh, variability, this this interannual, you know, change from either warm and dry to wet and warm um, and, and coming almost any time of the year. And I think that's one of the things that we should be really focusing on is, again, these extreme degree of variability and not just the trend that's going to take us from five years to 10 years to 15 to 20. You, you can't look at climate that way. Um. I saw an article, uh, and I'm and I want to see who did this, but uh, it it records the uh, states with the most extreme weather, mm-hmm. and they said that Illinois is the third most extreme weather in the country, behind Minnesota and California. Yeah, I would. I, I would was agree surprised with that. how low Wisconsin was on that list. Yeah, and I, and I think part of that, Peg, is the fact that you have to look at not so much the uh, extreme weather, but how it impacts the citizens of the state or the residents of the state. For instance, Wisconsin, once you get north of a line of like Minneapolis to Green Bay, uh, it, it's largely sparsely populated. There's not much in the way of agriculture up there. There's not much in the way of large cities. So I would have to look at the study and see you know, how um, different types of weather 
not only occurs, but how it impacts either the infrastructure, the economy, and also the people. Clearly in California, between the fact that it's the largest agricultural state in the U.S., the most populous, you have some of the largest you know, metropolitan areas, you have seasons that could go from winter to spring to summer to fall in a matter of seven days in some parts of the state. And obviously with wildfires um, now impacting not only air quality, which is something that is being talked about more so, uh, but also wine crops. You know, that, that's, that's a big, big industry. Minnesota, I can see it as well because, you know, it's cold and you do got a lot of agriculture in the southern part of the state and you got a larger metropolitan area with Minneapolis. Um, but other than that, um, you would think Wisconsin is probably in the top 10, though, I would imagine. Yeah. The, the factors they're using on this, Rick, is all-time max temperature, all-time minimum temperature, all-time greatest 24-hour precipitation, all-time maximum hmm. 24-hour snowfall, and annual tornadoes per 10,000 square miles. And okay, so they're analysis. strictly going with weather at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, it comes from yeah, National it, Centers for Environmental Information. Yeah, the NCEI. Yeah, yeah, that's the main site. Um, yeah, those those are really interesting to look at because clearly we're going to get more tornadoes than, than Wisconsin. Uh, and sometimes we'll get, you know, obviously much more in the way of rain as well. Uh, and you got to remember, Illinois is a, Illinois is a state. Um, and, I, and I stress this to my students it's a what? lot. When you look at the state. It's a very long state, north state, north south. Okay. So when you when you have a state that's north south like that, you can get sometimes a little bit more in the way of you know extreme weather events, kind of like the way both Minnesota and also uh, California are. So again, there's many different ways of looking at it. But again, going back and talking about you know what 2020 was, um, the previous three warmest years were 1921, 1931, and 1998. Now it's interesting. Mike and Peg is 1998 uh, was one of the strongest El Ninos on record. And here we are looking at a moderately strong La Nina, which is the reverse. It's a cooling of the, of the oceans. And yet our temperature in 2020 will end up being almost exactly the same as it was in, it was in 98. So I think it's clear to say that, that uh, the impact of even moderately strong La Nina is not having the impact that we have seen in previous La Nina years. And that goes into just what we've seen so far here in the Midwest, even though we've had some decent cold and some decent snow outside of the Chicago area. By and large, this has been a rather, you know, kind of mild start to a winter. I mean, here it is the 3rd of January, and I'm looking at, you know, temperature departures over the next two weeks of being at or above normal. And if we we get to the middle of January with temperatures above normal, we'll end up being probably already um, on, this, on the plus side of things, heading into the midpoint of the winter season. That's kind of interesting to all of a sudden you're going, but wait a minute, didn't winter start just a couple of weeks ago? It did, but it didn't because climatologically yeah. winter starts on December 1st. And when you get to yeah. January 15th, climatologically, you're at the midpoint of one point of Wow. Hmm. So uh, it happens yeah. fast, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. By the way, uh, the uh, state with the it just lingers. <laughs> the state with the yeah, least yeah, right. It does linger. You're right. The state with the least severe weather. Can you can you guess what that might be, Rick? Um, from a standpoint of changes, well, I mean, I'm gonna probably pick out a small state. I would say probably Delaware or Rhode Island. Right. Delaware is 48. Rhode Island is 49. 
Okay. Hawaii, right. Hawaii is 50th. There you go. So, so I, I think I got a pretty good grade on that question, right? I think so, too. <laughs> he gets a ding. No, wait a second. And I, and I, only, <laughs> I only did it. And I only did it due to graphical uh, reasoning there. Nothing else. Um, okay. So um, here we are with a little bit of snow, and it's kind of nice. And as I said earlier in the show, where was this on Christmas Eve when we needed it? Yeah, but this, this was really nice snow. I mean, if you woke up at about 7 o'clock this morning, uh, you went, wow, that's pretty. Uh, and now most of the snow has kind of either fallen off the trees, evaporated, or melted. Uh, but this was predicted. This was about an inch to about an inch and a half. Um, I think we're now up to 5.5 inches of snow so far for the bar for the season. Um, I could do a quick double check on that. Uh, but you know, up until about two days ago, um, this, this was the fifth least snowiest season to date since 1871. Um, yeah, we were 4.8 inches of snow up to last night. Um, normal is about 10.2. Last year at this time, we had about uh, the same, about 10 and a half. Um, but it still seems to me that, you know, even though we've had, you know, some misses, you know, here in, in the state of Illinois, there's been quite a bit of, quite a bit of um, either downstate to the west or to the east. We've just missed it. So when people say, where's the snow? There's been a lot of it. A lot of it came early. A lot of it came um, in bunches. And you know what? It, it, it's still a pattern that favors um, much more in the way of precipitation over the next two weeks. Even though we're not going to get a lot of snow and a lot of cold over the next two weeks, the pattern definitely wants to go into a much more active pattern, particularly for the second half, second half of January. Um, it's just that whether or not the snow that we have on the ground right now uh, is going to stick around. It looks like it will only because I don't see anything in the way of any real warming come. Uh, but it definitely seems like over the next two weeks, we're trending more mild than we are cold at this point. Yeah, that's that's what I've seen. And uh, it's, as you said, so far, it's been a pretty warm winter, all things uh, considered. Yeah, rel- relatively speaking, we ended up 5.5 degrees above normal uh, for the month of December. I did not run the numbers on where that stands um, from an historical perspective, uh, but seven degrees above normal in, in November, 5.5 degrees above normal in December is a good way to start. Uh, but as Peg alluded to before, it seems that the last three or four years, man, how winters have lingered. I mean, even until even in late April, we April, we know the last two years. And what's interesting to point out, the last two Aprils, have had more snow than the months of December, and you can probably end up with that again because we only had we only had we only zero point uh, eight inches of snow in the month of December. All it takes is one good dump in in yeah. the month of April, and that'll be three years in a row that April has overachieved the month of December and December ago. And that's not something you would happen. Yeah, that's yeah, something. Let's... Go ahead, Peggy. I was going to say as we've talked about before it. It's shifting. It seems like yeah, it winter's coming shifts. later, but spring is delaying. Yeah, and 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 that also, you know, lines up with what's happening with the lakes. You know, you start out with a lot less cold uh, in November, December, and you know, typically during this time of the year, I know Peg, you're down at the lakefront quite a bit. 
Um, there's no ice, no ice Sirloin, is there, pig? No. Yeah, no. Th- there's none at all. And and typically, um, in winters past, you have at least you know maybe a foot or two of ice beginning to develop. All you need is one overflow of you know five degrees, zero degrees. You get that pancake guys, guys mm-hmm. a little bit of an east wind. And you get those really weird kind of mounds of snow that develop along the shoreline. That's all you need to help keep the shoreline intact. But we have not been getting it. Uh, so you get a couple of these big storms that come through with persistent east-northeast winds. And anything that you did to help keep the lakefront or at least the beach the beach intact, you know, in, in uh, October and November you know, is basically gone. So I applaud the efforts that um, Evanston did to help protect uh, their lakefront and, and their parks and their beaches. Um, I don't know if what they did up in Gilson Park uh, in Wilmette uh, is going to work because all they did was they just dug away more at what was behind them. They didn't really do anything to protect the beach. And it you could only go so far into the line of trees and where people park their cars before there's no beach left. Yeah. So yeah. what they did, I don't think is going to really make too much of a difference if you have one big storm coming through and you take away 20 to 30 feet of sand. That's it after that. Okay. Well, give us uh, our very first forecast uh, for 2021. Yeah. So uh, we finished up, um, you know, the overnight with about an inch and a half of snow. Uh, you have our perennial low clouds and fog that usually occurs after a weak system goes through. Um, high today, generally right around three, 34, maybe 35 degrees. Um, the Bears are playing at Soldier Field. Definitely not bear weather, but they'll take it. Uh, overnight low down into the low to mid-20s. And then tomorrow, after a little bit of, you know, morning frost and some fog, just remaining cloudy with a high of about 36. Tuesday looks great, 36, the 40 again for high. So we're looking at about four or five degrees above normal. And then you look at Wednesday and what would have been in a normal winter, you know, maybe a half a foot of snow. Uh, we're going to get about a half inch to maybe an inch of rain. So it's going to be rain on Wednesday. I'm thinking that basically all the snow that's out there now will be gone. If you want to get out and do some cross-country skiing, this is probably the day to do it. Uh, probably tomorrow it'll be there as well. Uh, so those of you who love cross-country skiing, today and tomorrow morning, that's it. After that, it turns a slush. And then, believe it or not, Mike and Peg, we stay generally of normal Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, all three days, temperatures 35 to 40 degrees, nothing in the way of any significant cold and nothing any significant snow coming at us for the next 10 to 15 days. So wow. we can actually say that up until about the middle of January, there's really nothing in the way of any significant Arctic cold coming at us anytime soon. Now, it should be noted that across portions of eastern Siberia, uh, there has been a tremendously large pool of cold air, enough that set all-time record high pressure readings of 1090 millibars. And for us, us, Chicago, when we get a really big area of Arctic high pressure, we generally see, see, you know, maybe 1045, maybe 1050, but this was 1090 millibars and temperatures for about a week now in parts of Siberia have been have been rubber between 40 and 50 degrees to below zero Fahrenheit. So all you need is a little bit of a piece. Yeah, all you need is a little bit of a piece of that Arctic, 
you know, high, high pressure or Siberian high pressure to move across the North Pole. And if it does and settles into Canada, you can see some really super cold air around here in early February. But right now, that cold air seems to be steady uh, and it seems to be in the same place. So outside of the cold air over eastern Siberia, over Canada, and it's been pretty chilly in parts of Europe as well, the middle of the United States, or I say the middle of North America, generally steady as she goes for the next 10 to 15 days. Okay. Well, it is what it is. <laughs> and uh, and as long as you... Here's your, there's your United Nations forecast, by the way. <laughs> okay, appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Rick, happy uh, 2021, or as I've been telling people, happy not 2020. And uh, we will talk again next week. Yeah, and next week we can talk a little bit more about uh, what will be hopefully officially some of the uh, the appointees to the Biden climate team. I think that'll be kind of interesting to go over once we get Wednesday off the table. Yeah, we'll get that out of the way. A little minor detail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. I right, see you guys next week. Take care. All right, you too. Okay, Bye-bye. take care, Rick. Okay, and by that time, we will uh, <laughs> figure out why his phone breaks up like that. But uh, that's 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 for another day because the rest of it has has gone pretty well. Uh, let's let's see. Is there anything uh, we can add in for twenty twenty one? This is not normal. Yeah, I, I know. There's a lot that's not normal, Mister. Uh, President, and I thought we should, in honor of 2021, and they're off. Uh, had to do that. One more. Okay. Everything's so green. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> See, you've been moving sound effects over to that computer. Everything's so green. Yeah, okay. Uh, and on that note, uh, let's just uh, get out of here. Uh, thanks to everybody who was on the show today, um, Dr. Harry Clee. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. Tomatoes, tomatoes, uh, and get, don't forget, go to our website. You can get those seeds for your uh, uh, for your own tomato pleasure this summer. Uh, Mary Mitsos from uh, National Forest Foundation, Mike Redmer from the Daywin, uh, Rick DeMaio. Uh, thank you, Kayla. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Lagata. Thank you, uh, Basil. Until next time, go green or go home. Uh, Stadler? Uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. <laughs>